Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. G'day and welcome to The Call 10 Stocks, picked by you, two experts, one hour. It is Thursday, the 7th of April. I'm Andrew Gagan. Great to have your company. Well, today, our guests on the show, Gaurav Sodhi from Intelligent Investor, and Luke Winchester from Merriweather Capital. Welcome to both of you. Luke, um, how are you looking at the markets right now? Of course, we had a lot of commentary, uh, the Fed meeting minutes mm. overnight, looking even more hawkish, um, off the back, particularly off the back of those comments from Lael Brainard uh, the day before. Mm. Um, and as a result, um, certainly those growth stocks came off significantly. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not an uh, investor who focuses a lot on macro, but it is the only story in town, not just the US, obviously, but the RBA meeting the other day. Um, look, I think from where interest rates are, they have to rise. You know, there's no reason to keep them at emergency levels. And I think the RBA is behind the, the curve in that aspect. Um, the difficult situation they, they sit in, and it's where markets are, you see a lot of turmoil right now, is... Um, I'm just not sure a lot of the drivers of these inflation numbers we're seeing, I don't know how much an interest rate rise would actually affect them. It's it's very much supply chain disruptions, geopolitical issues. Um, I don't know how much a a 25 basis point interest rate rise would would really solve those problems. So central banks, they're in some tough positions and the market knows that. And, and, you know, you see that in the volatility and and, um, it seems that one board member will say one thing, one will say another, and the market doesn't know which way is up and which way is down. But... um, it's, yeah, for someone who, like I said, I, I try not to focus too much on macro. I try to own businesses. Um, it's a time right now where I think you can't avoid that conversation because it's permeating through the whole market so deeply. So, Gaurav, uh, both the Fed and the RBA altering their commentary just in the past couple of days, of course. Is that, is that altering your outlook just as far as investing is concerned? I'm mostly concerned about inflation, Andrew, and it's probably a response you hear a lot. But I, like Luke, I typically don't pay too much attention to macro. Um, and there are others who who do it better than me. So it's not it's not my, my strong suit. But I am genuinely concerned about um, inflation being entrenched. And by that, I mean, um, you know, we've had sort of 30 or 40 years where inflation has been expectedly low we've had investors have had a lot of confidence in the competence and the conviction of the central banks and i think that conviction that confidence is slowly being eroded and once that erosion starts it starts slowly but it can it can change very very quickly um i think one of the keys here will be does um does the workforce start expecting higher inflation do wages start start um, banking in higher inflation as well once you have that um it and inflation starts getting embedded into the labor market it runs away from you a little bit and then it becomes very difficult um it, it's something i don't think the rba in particular is paying enough attention to I, i'd say the the us fed is probably more on it and they're 
the problem there is more urgent. Um, but certainly, I think that's one of the risks that um, that the Australian market faces that has not really been addressed um, by the RBA. All right. Well, we'll um, revisit the interest rate question in just a moment, in fact, with one of our stocks. But um, let's uh, just preview what we're going to get through in the, at least in the first half of the show. We're going to take a look at Domino's, Centrix, uh, PPK Group, Alcidian and Kip McGrath Education Centres. Our stock of the day, we're taking a look at QBE. It is in the news for a couple of reasons this morning. Um, first up, it signed a long-term agreement with Kogan to provide home, motor and CTP products through Kogan Insurance, which will launch later this year. Uh, QBE's Managing Director, Eleanor DeBell, saying the partnership will see the company deliver best practice online service to Kogan's three million customers. Uh, the other issue, of course, at the moment, particularly fict- uh, affecting uh, Sydney and the broader regions down the east coast, is the weather. Um, and that is certainly a focus for insurers and QBE, uh, with City today upgrading QBE to a buy mm. as it expects the company to best manage rising costs brought on by higher weather allowances and reinsurance costs. Uh, although shares have dipped in the morning trade, currently off around 1.5%. So let's see what our experts think. Uh, Luke, certainly we do have uh, disasters being a big feature. That's certainly affecting insurers at the moment as far as and where premiums are likely to go. The other point which I was alluding to there were interest rates and mm. where they're heading and how that affects insurers. How's QBE placed at this point? Yeah, look, I think one of the, the greatest mysteries to me of investing is how Warren Buffett, the world's greatest investor, has done so well out of insurers because they're inherently average businesses. Mm. And, and for all those factors you just outlined, um, but they're inherently commodity products, very competitive. Um, the best insurance go out there and find niches where they can um, really dominate that niche and extract a moat around it. That's not QBE. QBE is the behemoth and every three or four years QBE downgrades because they've been exposed to a, a South American auto insurance or a Middle Eastern, uh, you know, whatever insurance. It's, it's a behemoth where I think even management don't really know what they're exposed to at times. Um, so a lot of moving parts. I think that overall trend of be it global warming or whatever, it's clearly you know, it's increasing this, this natural disasters and, and the scale as well. Um, that's not a positive for them. Um, rising yields is always the tailwind that's, that you know, people talk about with, with insurers, they're exposed, they're float obviously on, on the yields. Um, the short term, I agree with that. I think as, as you've seen um, bond yields rise, they will get that benefit in the next maybe year or two. But, you know, it's, it's capitalism, right? And at some point, these businesses will reprice their insurance book because they're making more profits on their, um, on their float through, the, through the, um, the return. So I think it's a bit of a net-net longer term. Yes, you'll, you'll make more on your float, but because of that, competition will whittle away at the, at, at the pricing end of the insurance. Um, the Kogan stuff, I think, you know, it's, it's not a bad announcement, obviously. You're, mm. you're expanding some distribution with a, with a brand name. QBE, like I said, is a behemoth. I, I think in the grand scheme of things, it probably doesn't bring in that much. Um, for me, look, I, I've had QBE and, and, and the other big insurers as a sell for a while, to be honest. Um, and, and my opinion probably hasn't changed, even despite that rise in yields we've seen over the last few months. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Gaurav, your thoughts there? I mean, insurance, it is such a dynamic sector at the moment. Well, you, there's a surefire way of making money from QBE specifically, Andrew, and that is just to do the opposite of what I tell you to do, because I've got a dreadful track record on this stock. Intelligent Investor has gotten this wrong multiple times, and the conclusion I've come to is that um, 
it, an analyst time is better spent than on this stock because um, the complexity and the variables are so broad that you can never really understand this business. You know, everyone thinks that that insurance is pretty straightforward and and um, and, and that you should invest in straightforward stocks. Well, this is this is neither understandable nor straightforward. Um, it's it's actually just a black box. You don't know. Um, what they've written, you don't know the risks inherent. Um, the reinsurance is is a is a mystery. I, I I I challenge anyone to really to come up with an adequate way of um, of understanding what these guys are going to make in any given year or even over time. Um, I think Luke's point earlier is absolutely crucial. This has become the lazy man's exposure to interest rates, but but what most investors um, I think don't recognize is that. Um, Insurers make their money two ways. Once one is from their float, and one is from um, the actual insurance itself, and those things largely cancel each other out. So, in in times of low interest rates, they're much more competitive on the insurance part, and in times of higher interest rates, where they make money on the float, then much um, the prices on the insurance book start to fall. So, there's no free lunchy. There's no easy way to make money from um, QBE or insurance generally. I think this is. Mm. A poor quality business that's uh, very difficult to understand, and for me, it, it, it's almost uninvestable. Wouldn't wouldn't buy it at almost any price. Wow, that's uh, interesting take from both of you. That is QBE. All right, let's get into it. Our first stock is uh, Domino's. Uh, Robin asking, in fact, uh, Gorev saying you're a big fan uh, is dropped precipitously and is hit by supply chain issues. Uh, people going back to work. Um, uh, COVID, those issues seem to be receding, Robin's saying, at these levels. Is it a buy again, Gora? It's, it's, it's funny, people. It's funny. Um, your perspective really depends, I guess, on, on when you board in and how long term you are. For me, I own Domino's. I have for several years. And for me, Domino's in my portfolio plays an anchor role. It's, it's a stock I don't need to worry about too much. It's a stock that when it sends an announcement out, you know, I don't get worried. My heart doesn't stop. It's one of my no worries um, uh, uh, holdings. And um, it's, it's amusing that if you had, if you had bought it um, at $150 and, and watched it fall all the way to $80, it's probably not that for you. You know, for you, it's probably um, a business that you worry about. Um, and and uh, I think that says a lot about buying it um, at reasonable prices. Um, and, and understanding what you're buying. But this is actually an outstanding business. I, I think this is one of the best businesses on the ASX. I'm on record as saying I think this may have maybe the best management on the ASX. It's certainly up there. And um, and you can see even from the um, uh, from the results of, of Domino's US, that thing has outperformed Google since um, Google listed. It's it's These are phenomenal business models when they are successful and there is no doubt that Domino's is, is successful. So why has the share price fallen so much? Well, um, if you look at their um, results from year to year, the last year was worse than the year before. Profits actually fell. But look at it over a three or four year cycle and the growth that this company has has harnessed has been nothing short of extraordinary. And I think they're just getting started. There is so much. There are very few stocks on the ASX with so much growth um, baked in, with this kind of track record, with this kind of management, and the sheer, you know, I'm not really big on financial metrics. I think they they can deceive a lot, but I, I think in this case, they illuminate how good this business really is. So I reckon in, in Australia, they can, they can open hundreds of new restaurants. 
in Japan, the opportunity is still in the thousands, and in the and in Europe, the opportunity is still in its thousands. So I think earnings could double within five years or so in this business, and that is worthwhile paying for. So even though mm. it looks very expensive on a PE basis, I still think this is one of the best growth businesses on the ASX. I own it. It's a buy for us. We own it in our portfolios, and um, I think it's a reasonable price to start buying now. Well, there you go, Robin. I think from that, you can take that Gaurav is still a big fan of Domino's. Let's see if Luke is. Um, yeah, look, I mean, as a business, I, I have to agree with Gaurav. It's an exceptionally high quality, um, sustainable sort of 18, 19% returns on capital. Um, it says it all. And and to, to Gaurav's point about the management team, um, there's another stock coming up in the second half. I'll, I'll give them the same um, um, kudos as well. To expand overseas, like we know it's it's a graveyard for a lot of businesses. You know, you've done well in Australia to take that business model overseas. So many fail to do it. And, and, and you know, you can sometimes even go to the UK where we have similar society structures or, or whatever, but to go to Japan, you know, Western Europe, now Taiwan, and recreate a business where the margin profiles don't differ that much. The returns on capital don't differ that much. It's, it is a testament to the management team. Um, the valuation's 40 times, which, that's expensive, but as, as Gaurav pointed to, this is a business where they have some, um, you know, at face value, ambitious targets of where they want to take their stores in, in, in a 10-year time frame. Um, if they get anywhere near those targets, the price you're paying today is exceptionally cheap. Um, it's just about obviously having that long-term view for how they get there. Um, the short term, they're in, they're in, a, they're in a margin crunch. Um, cost inflation's going up, and at the same time, they've embarked on a, a bit of a capex cycle with a, a project ignite, they're calling it in Australia. Um, so you combine those two things, you're seeing margins get crunched. But it's, it's a short, as I said before, it's a short-term impact to the business, and that's where good investors, you know, these are the, are the it's not a cyclical business, but it's it's these times when you can buy a business like this on those short-term issues for the longer-term um, growth. The only red flags I see is, is debt's creeping up there. It's, it's a business that can handle debt, but at 1.5 times EBITDA, it maybe takes away the flexibility to move on an acquisition if they had to quickly. Other than that, look, I, I, I think it's a buy as well, but probably for the right investor, as Gaurav pointed out, someone who's got a long-term focus um, and you know is, is maybe willing to look through another, maybe a year worth of mm. noise here around around cost pressures. And, and, and I think the, the CapEx they've called out is probably another 12 months. So, you know, Will the share price reflect that? You know, the market will eventually start to look ahead. But if you can already look ahead, you know, three, four, five years, even to the 10 years where they've got that, um, that target, you'll do exceptionally well from these levels. All right. That is a double buy on... Jump in there, Andrew. Um, the, um, uh, the, the point about the margin crunch is actually yeah. um, worth, worth thinking about because that, that, that's the reason why the, the price has halved so much, have uh, gone down so much rather. Um, Domino's US has been warning of um, of higher input costs, and we've seen this sort of thing happen twice before. Um, the, the market become very worried about margins for Domino's twice before. The first time uh, was about a decade ago when cheese prices went through the roof, and um, and the mar- market freaked out about Domino's, thinking, oh, they're not going to be able to make money because there's so much cheese, um, and they can't raise prices. And and that yep. was a first, that that was no problem. They got through that. The second was when they're worried about Domino's delivery. And they, they thought the market thought that um, all those delivery platforms were going to squeeze out Domino's, and the price fell to uh, thirty dollars or so. Um, that's when I, I bought in, and that's when Intelligent Investor upgraded Domino's. Um, and of course, Domino's found its way through that. There are always going to be problems in business, and they're they're facing one right now. But um, you don't get 
an opportunity to buy unless you have a problem holding it back or a problem causing others to question the model. Mm. So um, these kind of problems are instrumental in creating the opportunity. This is not mm. something to be scared of. This is the opportunity. And I think it just takes um, a bit of, 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 of patience and, and foresight to see that. Well, and there is the opportunity right now, obviously, given it has fall, it has halved, as you say, that share price in the past six months. All right, let's move on. We're, uh, we better get going. Our second stock is Centrix. In fact, um, I'm going to throw this back at you, Gaurav, because our viewer Yaz has asked for your commentary on this. A small cap mining specialist um, looking at phosphate and potash. Uh, wants to take into account also what's going on with the macro environment, clearly with those prices for fertiliser going up substantially. Gaurav, what are your thoughts? Look, we won't get too technical here, Andrew, but, but phosphate and potash are two quite different products with two completely different sets of economics. Um, what Centrex is mostly concerned with is phosphate rock mining. Which, um, which is a really old industry. Now, I think it was in the 1800s, there was a war, it was called the war for, for, for bat poo. Um, uh, phosphate rock was one of the earliest known forms of fertilizer and uh, countries went to war about rocks filled with, with bat droppings and who would get access to, to mining those rocks. Um, and very little has changed actually. Phosphate rock is still fairly important. But the, the larger part of the, of the value chain in, in this um, phosphorus fertilizer gets captured in the processing. Phosphate rock has to get turned into um, a product called MAP and DAP. And, and that sort of processing is very energy intensive and it tends to attract, I think, I think probably the, the best part of the industry. Um, and there's not too many phosphate rock miners who make wonderful returns. So, uh, you know, I, I think when you're looking at these raw materials, you've got to look at them in the context of the problem they're trying to solve and who in that value chain captures most of the value. Um, for potash, I, I would actually say it's the, the opposite for potash. Potash is actually a very good mining business, and you can find yourself a good potash miner, you find yourself a business earning good returns. But phosphate rock, I, I, I come to this with inherent skepticism. Look, having said that, this is a, a tiny business, but the actual mining ticks a lot of boxes. You want something that's low to the ground, um, that's easy to, to process, uh, with very low strip ratios, and and this has all of that. Um, I look, I see with interest that that one of the um, uh, the executive team used to chair the Nairu's phosphate uh, business um, years ago. My one of my early bosses um, worked with Nairu's phosphate business to, to as she was negotiating with the World Bank, and she did not have kind things to say about it. So I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but. For me, the the final decision just really comes to how valuable this project can be. The business itself has stated that it has a net present value of 200 million. This is a 90 million dollar business. So if they hit everything they expect, you're looking at a potential double. It's just not enough, Andrew. That's, I, I don't think that's enough for a a commodity that isn't renowned for making fantastic returns. At for your best case scenario, just to be a double. When you're already starting with a capital-starved business um, that has to build and develop so much, for me the risk-reward he doesn't really doesn't really turn up. I mean, look, if okay. you have a different idea, the mining part looks looks pretty sensible, but um, but I, I would look elsewhere. It's an avoid for me. An avoid, okay, Luke. Um, Gorav is, is much better suited for for a business like this than I am. Um, the first thing I notice is it's 
right now it's it's the hot space like there's a lot of headlines around fertilizer shortages with the, the russia ukraine and um you know the the market naturally takes in those headlines and looks around okay who can potentially solve that problem and centrex is sitting there as a, as a phosphate producer um you know to gorab's point again i don't know mining too well but the thing i noticed it's a very low capex mine and it probably hints towards what he was saying about in that value chain where it is it it probably is a mine where you just dig it up and ship it off and, and someone else captures all the value um, look, as far as I could tell, they're, they're ticking all the boxes on the way to production. They, they raised some capital yesterday for a trial plant, which will start bringing some revenue in the door. Um, because the big issue I have with these explorers is, you know, the, the prices of, of phosphate and, and other um, commodities and materials run hard. Um, and of course, these businesses become the solution to their own problem. They, they bring that marginal supply on board, which causes the price to come back down. So they never, you know, you've got, you've got to reach production to then access the, the higher prices. So. That's always my view. It's, it's, you know, yes, right now, phosphate prices are higher. And um, if you plug in the higher phosphate price into the, the NPV calculations Gaurav was talking about, you probably get more than 200 mil. But it's, it's where will that be in the future? And, and, you know, I'm sure there's another 50 or 100 Centrexes around the world looking to bring some sort of phosphate into production and they end up solving their own problem. So look, I, I, I don't know enough to say buy or sell, so I'll, I'll just say hold for the, for the program. But, but Gaurav raises, I think, some really good points around the, um, the, the mine itself. All right, that's Centrix. Our third stock, PPK Group. Troy, wanting to know about this, saying, well, let's take a look. A horrible chart, trading at 12-month low, down from 20 to 5, you can see there, certainly from September, uh, saying clearly a bet on the technology. It looks like the market has moved on, but given the announcements, he thinks it could be worth a small holding again. He sold it after $18. Well done to you. And um, look, we should also note that it um, has a, a, a stake in LAS Energy, which is lithium sulfur battery tech. Uh, that exploded in value, then came off significantly. Luke, how are you looking at PPK? Yeah, so PPK um, used to be a, a mining services business, uh, which I was familiar with. And, and, you know, like a lot of mining services business, it ticks along, does okay, but very cyclical and, um, you know, ultimately probably not great businesses you want to own. Um, and new management and a, and a new chairman came in and bought a stake in a business called BNNT Limited, which stands for Boron Nitride Nanotubes. And this is something you see in microcaps every now and then where, you know, the, the business pivots to, to some new technology, which who knows exactly what it is or what it does. I'll give these guys a bit of credit. So, so what they've done is they've taken that Boron Nitride Nanotube where they've um, come up with, they've taken the technology from the CSIRO of how to produce that at a lower cost than um, anyone else around the world. And because of that, they're now taking those, um, those, those nanotubes and just trying to apply them to, to a bunch of different use cases. And rather than fund that off their own balance sheet, they're creating little subsidiaries um, where they'll own a, a, you know, a minority stake or sometimes a, a slight majority stake um, and see whether they can add value to an existing process or create a new process using these, these BNNTs. So LIS, you know, spun out of, it's an example of, of what this model wants to do. You, you build a business like LIS, which mm. uses these BNNTs in, in you know, um, battery research and, and potentially production. Um, you monetize that, spin it off to the market. They've got the equity stake sitting on their balance sheet. It, it's the example of how this model will work. So, you know, as Troy puts it, it's a bet on the technology. I, I don't know a lot about the BNNTs, but it, there's something there, obviously, um, you know, potent, well, in, in that LIS space anyway, but, but the other stuff they're doing seems interesting as well. The main red flag I saw was that idea, I get it, and I, I see they've demonstrated that they can extract some value, 
they've started to make a couple of investments away from that BNNT space. And to me, you know, you're onto something which has some promise. Now you're moving into ballistics, a face masks business, a traffic software business. And I sort of wonder, are you spreading yourself too thin across too many different things? Um, otherwise, look, you know, I, like I said before, I agree with Troy's summation. It's a bet on the tech. I don't know enough about the tech to come here and say buy. The chart mm. sort of suggests, you know, could you look at it today and, and, and find some value from where it was? Maybe. Um, I would say hold if you're there. But um, I, I think just be, be a bit wary of, of, as I said before, a management that maybe starts to spread themselves a bit too thin and yeah. away from that competency of, of where they found a bit of a niche for themselves. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Over diversifying, perhaps, uh, Gaurav. It's a fascinating one, isn't it? I'm, I know, I've heard about this um, quite often because a friend of mine bought this when it was a mining services business. And as he never fails to remind me, he made a hundred bagger from PPK, a um, hundred times his money on it. And um, he knows absolutely nothing about boron um, nitrate <laughs> nanotubes, but had the good sense to know that he didn't know and knew when to ride his luck. Um, and I think that's what that's the attitude you'd probably need to take to something like this. You never really, I think, for, for the average layman or even for the enthusiastic amateur, it's going to be very difficult to really get an in-depth understanding of, of the technology here and the way we would typically want to understand the business that we're investing in. So you, you're really banking on a bit of luck. and. The business is actually set up nicely to take advantage of luck. You know, I don't think luck is something that falls in your lap. You can sometimes structure your investing or, or structure your business to um, to take advantage of serendipity. And I think PPK have done that pretty well. Luke has explained how they've done that. And I, and I think that's actually quite smart. Um, uh, my, my mate's still invested in it, um, but but some of the points Luke was raising have caused him to uh, to question a little bit and they would keep me out of the stock. When I see a business who uh, has a mission or an idea um, um, and then suddenly changes tact and, and starts mm. changing that mission, altering that idea, I think that is a red flag. Yep. And so many companies, there's a graveyard of businesses um, who have just uh, you know gone on chasing one thing after the other and, and lost sight of what the, the company was supposed to do. My concern is that PPK will end up in that graveyard. But um, look, if I had it, I, I, I'd, I'd hold it. I, I think there's enough optionality here. But just recognize, I think, that, that you have to be somewhat of a, um, of, of a lucky holder in this one. And, mm. and I don't think you'll ever get to understand it. Hence, your position size needs to be very small. I'll go All right. Yep. All right, small position, both a wary hold on PPK group. All right. To our next stock, Alcidian, James, wanting to know about this, uh, saying it's offer on the call, a greater focus on the fundamentals of the company. He'd like to get more of a technical perspective of Alcidian. In fact, uh, it's just signed a five-year agreement with East Lancashire Hospitals in the UK to implement one of its uh, products in terms of patient flow solutions. Um, Gaurav, perhaps you can explain that and what you're seeing with Alcidian at the moment? Uh, well... You might have the wrong two people up here to talk about charts, <laughs> I'd suggest. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll, I'm going to try and be polite about charting. Um, to me, it is, um, it's momentum trading with illustrations. Um, and um, most pe most times when I've, when I've come across chartists, it's people who are who are too lazy to do the real work of investing. And it is hard work. And it sometimes can be very attractive to look at a picture 
and think you can divine the future and you see patterns in it and maybe those patterns are there and maybe they're not i don't know but i do know that not many um billionaire investors are charters and, and a lot of them are fundamental analysts and what i'm trying to do is not trying to divine the future i'm trying to buy a stake in a business and the shape of its chart doesn't really help me with that um so i'll leave the charting there um and and I'm actually pleased to have a chance to, to speak about this business with Luke because it's one I, I would appreciate his, his view on. It's probably a lot more up his alley than my alley. I've come across this a few times and had a lot of questions about it. On the surface, it's kind of interesting. Um, so these guys do sort of, uh, workflow software in hospitals and they can make the life of a hospital and the staff there um, a lot easier with their software. Um, and the numbers themselves are quite attractive. We're looking at a, at, you know, $250 million business that does 25 million revenue. Um, so it, it's sort of 10 times revenue, which a lot of these software style businesses tend to trade at. Um, but what, what, what I have a problem with here really is just, um, just some key questions. There's, it's not really a lot of revenue when you consider that they're in about 400 hospitals. We're talking about sort of 60 grand they're making out of, in revenue they're making out of each hospital. It doesn't strike me as being all that high. You'd really have to get a lot of hospitals on board, I think, to start justifying that um, that market cap, and um, the the sales model to hospitals has to be quite unique, and I'm, I'm not clear what that is. Um, I, I don't know what the competition is like, what the churn rates are like, what the ongoing development cost is, and I'd also want to know how much customization of of the software is required for each client. Um, you know, a company like Tech One, Tech One has sort of a single line of code philosophy, and they sell that single line of code to everyone, so they scale beautifully. But a business like this, I'm not sure if this can scale as well. The numbers aren't great so far, but, but it is early stage, so I think we can mm. forgive it that. I'm just very wary of some of, some of these software businesses trading at 10 times revenue in this environment when um, the numbers aren't all that compelling, and, and I can't really see what the lock on the customer is here. Um, so look, I'm, I'm gonna give it a pass, but but I, 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 I'm not really the best person for this, and I'm, I'm listening right. like everyone else to what Luke has to say about it. All right, Luke, take the floor. Um, I might have to disappoint Gaurav a bit, because I must admit, when James asked for a technical view, I then didn't go and look too deep at the stock. I know it, don't get me wrong, it's obviously my universe, and I've come across it a few times. Um, I, I shared Gaurav's, you know, he made the comment about they probably got the wrong panel. Um, I emailed uh, a friend who, you know, I, he's not a complete technical analyst, but he pairs it with fundamentals. Um, his comment was, James, that um, if he liked Alcidian as a fundamental business, it's recently broken above the 50-day moving average after being in a downtrend, he would take a small parcel now and look to average up if that sort of um, change in the trend is, is sort of confirmed. But that would only be if he liked the business. He wouldn't buy it purely just on the charts. Um, quick comment to, to Gaurav. Uh, I ha look, I must admit, Alcidian, I've always thought it's a bit too expensive, so I haven't really dug too deep into it. I feel like, like a lot of healthcare tech businesses, as investors, it's pattern recognition, right? And um, we've seen the success of a lot of healthcare tech companies. We know that they exhibit a lot of the characteristics we want to find in investments. Um, so we want to like a business like Alcidian. We want it to be a ProMedicus or, or you know, um, something like that. To me, they've been very acquisitive and that's always a bit of a red flag. It suggests that either your product suite wasn't fleshed out with your go-to-market mm. or you're in a space where it's very difficult to win customers organically. 
Um, some companies can do well acquiring, but the majority struggle. So I, I've never really, despite wanting to like our sit-in, I've never really sort of dug deep and, and, and um, had a good look at it. So right. um, I, I guess it's hard to answer James's question. I would say a hold for yep. me, um, but but on his question about technicals, you know, my, my learned friend said you could maybe start to inch in with a buy if you liked it. Fair enough. Okay, all right, let's get to our fifth. We better get a wriggle on. We're falling behind. Um, and Luke Kip McGrath, Education Centres. Diane wanted to know about this one. It is, of course, uh, tutoring. Uh, did recently, what it transitioned more to online tutoring mm. during COVID, uh, didn't it? And um, I know this is in your wheelhouse just as far as, because it had a franchise model and that's essentially changed, hasn't it? Yeah, so this is in my wheelhouse. Um, it's in the Merriweather Capital Fund. It was my pick for the Ausbiz Christmas crackers for, for yep. 2022. Um, the business has gone through a transformation over the last few years. And, and the two main changes are the one you alluded to. COVID brought on a, a big shift forward in that pivot from um, purely face-to-face to a shift of, of um, in-person and, and online. Um, and the other one is they're, they're um, corporatizing a lot of their franchise network. and. Businesses that do that, it's always an interesting time because you've obviously had franchises operating these centres for many years. The business can pick and choose which ones it wants to bring in, or it knows the characteristics of a good centre. So it knows which centres you know, are maybe in a good catchment area but underperforming. Um, it's been a couple of years now refining their process and their go-to-market, so they know the, the, the things they can do and improve to, to, to um, turn these centres around when they do acquire them. Um, but of course, there's just a, um, a fixed cost base to running a, a corporate tutoring business, which they've had to put in place up front, and that's what muddied those profits for a couple of years. Um, I think they're now past that, and they're at the point now where you'll really see some scale come into this business. You'll really see leverage into that profit line. You started to see it in the, um, in the first half report where um, they saw some, some really strong profit growth over some good revenue. Um, I think this business can really come out and surprise the market in FY23. I, I think at least five mil net profit, um, trading on call it 60 million market cap at the minute. Um, and there's a potential for that to be even higher. They've got some some potential blue sky with the US expansion, which they're doing very carefully, but it's it's growing nicely. Um, and I think it's so far, they haven't even really captured the pent up demand from COVID of call it two and a half years of, of disrupted learning in schools. And, mm. and I think they're um, governments have recognised that it'll be difficult for, for kids to, to purely be supplemented through um, um, you know, schooling and, and, and at tutoring and private private tutoring will have to pick up some slack. So I really like Kit McGrath, particularly in the next, well, the next year, given the Christmas crackers selection. Yeah. All right. Okay. It's uh, a big like there from Luke Gorev. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear from Luke on this one as well. I've heard him speak about Kit McGrath before. Um, and look, I must say, I've never really gotten it. It's a very big change they're trying to make here. They're going from a franchise business, which I think has everyone knows really that they, they have franchise businesses have wonderful economics. You don't have to lay down a lot of capital and you get to get to get a clip of out of someone else's very hard work as they run and attract business. So that's that's a great business. But then I don't quite understand why they want to, to internalize all of that. For me, the economics are probably worse. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you're if you, it's basically if, if you're running physical tutoring centers, you have staff who um, who can generate a, 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 a fixed sort of revenue base, really, before you have to start hiring more staff. Um, and, you know, the competition is endless. The reputation as you grow gets harder to control. Um, 
and uh, I think your returns are kind of capped. Um, and then if you're looking at softwares, as these guys are doing, trying to do a lot of this stuff online, you get more scale, that's true. But but again, the, the competition is just endless in this industry um, and your churn rates are potentially very high. I'm not quite sure that this is a high locked in uh, revenue kind of model. Um, well, I can understand why you'd look at it. The cash flow is, is quite attractive. It, it appears to be very well managed. I think um, the, I like the alignment um, of management here, mm. but the growth record has been patchy and I, I would give this a miss. Um, you know, um, it, for me, it's, it, I'd look, so, I'd, I'd look elsewhere. Yep. Okay. Fair enough. Let's uh, summarize the, uh, the five stocks we've just been through. Then we had the stock of the day uh, that was QBE. Um, both pretty much got a, uh, a sell on it. Um, Gaurav summing up by saying that uh, difficult to understand this business really in, in insurance as to how it all stacks up. Domino's was our first pick and a buy from both. Uh, both liking it. It's an anchor role in Gaurav's portfolio. Outstanding. The best managed business on the ASX. It's a big tick from him and uh, Luke also liking it. Centrix, um, it is a uh, small cap mining specialist uh, in both phosphate and uh, potash and avoid from Gorev. Uh, Luke has a hold on it. PPK Group uh, diversified its investments there, uh, which is a bit of a red flag as far as Luke is concerned. Gorev has a hold on it. Uh, it's difficult to get an understanding of its uh, of its uh, technology that it deals with there. Alcidian was our fourth one. Uh, it's a pass from Gorav. Luke has a hold on it, saying it's uh, too expensive, uh, very acquisitive, which is a bit of a red flag for Luke. And Kit McGrath there, a big yes from Luke and a no from Gorav. So two very different opinions for Kit McGrath. All right, the call is tracking its own high conviction. Um, fund, which is picked by our investment committee. The latest episode there is live for you to watch on ausbiz.com. So let's uh, check in with a portfolio update. Uh, JB Hi-Fi, Prometicus, Linus, Intertech Pivot added to the fund just recently, joining equal allocations of BHP, Macquarie, Mineral Resources, Steadfast, Aristocrat Leisure, Ordinate, CSL, NextDC, and Universal Store. Then half units of Qantas, Frontier Digital Ventures, and 20% is being held in cash. So our fund is up just close to 2% on a cumulative return basis since its inception in March. So keep sending us your requests and keep switching on as far as the call is concerned. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while. And although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools. Plus, our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own underlying assets. Consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum for CMC Pro accounts at our website. Uh, let's to our next five now. It's Breville, RXF Scientific, Capral, Frontier Digital Ventures, which is in the portfolio, and Auckland Airport. Uh, gentlemen, we're going to have to make this quick because we are running out of time. Gaurav Breville, Scott wanting to know about this, uh, saying it's staying to average into uh, over the past six to 12 months for a medium to long-term hold. Wants to know your views. Of course, it is the uh, kitchen appliance maker with brands such as uh, Baratsta, Cambrook, Sage, and of course, its own Breville brands. 
Yeah, look, this first popped on our, on our um, watch list a couple of years ago. We were doing a training exercise and um, and I was looking through Breville for the training exercise. And um, what really surprised me was I thought this was a maker of appliances. I thought it was a manufacturing business. And when I looked at it, there was no property plan and equipment. There's no inventory. There was no there was no nothing in its accounts to suggest that this was a manufacturing business. And then I realized that actually this is a marketing business and that's how you explain the phenomenal returns on this thing. They actually outsource um, all their manufacturing um, to China. They do the design work and a bit of the uh, the tech work. Um, but fundamentally, this is a design and branding business. And um, these, when they work, when the company has the right culture and understands its market really well, this kind of business can be phenomenal and no one can accuse of Breville of being anything less. This is a, a, a fantastic business. I'd love to own it. We're almost there, actually. I think our guy, our analyst has said um, somewhere under 25, he wants it, 24, 25. Mm. And I personally wouldn't be quite as fussy as that. I think it's it's probably okay to start accumulating now if you're okay. a, a patient long-term investor. But um, uh, there's plenty of growth in Europe to come for this business. And what I really like is just the innovation they've shown. Innovation gets thrown around a lot. Everyone thinks they innovate, but very few companies have a, a track record of, of true innovation. And I'd put Breville on that list. All right. um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go buy. Okay, Luke. In fact, I should add that Morgan's has a uh, ad rating price target there of $32. Mm. Um, so this is what I was alluding to when we we're talking about Domino's before, the, the other high quality business on the ASX where, again, um, the ability to go overseas, take a brand overseas and, and, and have the same margin profile, return on capital profile, it's very rare. Um, and and it's, it's always a testament to the management team. Um, you look at their last report and, and this was a reporting season where businesses like Breville um, who had a pull forward of demand when COVID first hit, starting to cycle those numbers, everyone struggled. All the retailers were reporting some, some negative sales and having to use two-year comparables and all this sort of stuff. You know, like clockwork, Breville grew revenue 23% on already elevated base. Um, in, in the face of every other business reporting cost inflations and margin pressures, you know, still grew their profits 25% and managed to, to keep margins stable. So I thought it was fantastic with all the issues that the business faced. Um, you read the report management, they're just so transparent on cash flow and inventory management. Um, they talk about how they're not exposed to aging inventory and they're very strategic with how they acquire inventory and, and around timing. Um, and and I, I trust them on that. I think they're a high quality team. I give them definitely that benefit of the doubt. I actually agree with Gaurav's point. It's, it's about 35 term, times earnings, that's not cheap. But Scott, who sent the question in, said, if I'm looking to average in over the next six to 12 months for a medium long-term hold, mm. you can definitely start today for sure. I, I agree with Gaurav's point. I wouldn't be fussy and say, I want this at $24. I, I yep. think this price today with that strategy Scott's outlying about, about coming in slowly over time, um, go for it. All right, let's call Breville a buy from both. Our next one is RXF Scientific. Zach wanting to know about this. And Luke, it is a, it's a lab testing business uh, exposed really to the, commodity, to the uh, commodity producers. What it's all about the assay tests and, mm. and both the equipment, but also the consumables that, uh, that it provides. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is an, another larger holding for me, Meriwether Capital, so I'll disclose that. Um, it gets lumped in as a mining services business, which it's exposed to mining, but um, you know, mining services businesses are tagged as low margin, cyclical, and, and you know, businesses you don't want to own. And I think this business is, is much, much better than that. 
And the reason why is because of the Razor Razor Blade model they have with their, their, their core lab equipment. So in effect, it's, it's, it's lab equipment, it's very simple. It just heats up mining samples to extremely high temperatures, uh, melts them down, and then it can be used in, a, in an X-ray spectrometer. Um, but to do that, um, they uh, mix in a consumable product primarily made out of lithium, and they do mid 30% profit margins on that consumable product. And, and that's what sets them apart from, from all other mining services companies. They're not you know, tied to fixed price contracts or you know, um, the level of capex in the sector. Um, it's had a good run, 15 times forward earnings um, on my numbers. Um, you know, that's, that's um, sorry, FY22 um, numbers. I think that's fair. So, like, if you're looking at XRF today, and, and it, it's it's a good business, and and you know, I, similar to that strategy before with Breville, mm -hmm. you could probably start buying it today. I, th I don't think you're overpaying, um, but it's not exceptionally cheap. There is a big risk right now, and it's definitely something to watch. Which is, as I alluded to before, the main input to that consumables product is lithium, and we know what lithium prices are doing yeah. now. Management has said that um, they've sort of held back on price increases to customers since COVID hit. And they think there's a bit of um, uh, sort of slack there to, to, to pass on the, the increases in, in the lithium price to their customers. We have to wait and see whether they can do that. Um, I, I think it's a very good management team, don't get me wrong. I, like I said, large holding for me and, 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 I, and I back them to do it, but it is the main risk to the stock right now. So watch that closely. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, yeah, I, I, again, I, I really love this business and I think it's it's very misunderstood by the market when it's just labeled purely as a mining services business. All right, Gore. Yeah, I actually got this from Luke. I've heard Luke speak about this business before, and previous to that, I'd never heard of it. So thanks, Luke. Um, and I would largely concur. This is actually, you're right, Luke. This is, I think this gets gets put in with that basket of crappy mining services stocks, and it's just not. It's a far superior business to that. Um, I like management as well. Um, and, and like Luke, I'd also highlight that the, I think at 15 times earnings, that's probably about fair value. This is a better than average business but it's not a breville or a dominoes that you want to pay um big big prices for um and and that profit margin of 30 percent that, that's looking quite quite big actually especially when they've got um, input costs to pass on i worry about that a little bit but i, I think the business is good enough to, to hang on for a hold but i'd, I'd caution that you i wouldn't be buying up here I, I think um i think it's fairly valued and and this sort of business, when it's fairly valued, you, you probably want to be um, holding or, or limiting your, your position size. Mm. Okay, all yep. right. Next one, Capital. Chris wanted to know about this saying, uh, recently stumbled upon it. Uh, the company's fundamentals appear good. However, I couldn't get a good read on the competitors or the, or the uh, organization's growth potential. Can you provide some insight? Gaurav, this is an aluminium products uh, manufacturer. It did uh, last year, in fact, it knocked back a, a, a by a, uh, a uh, Allegro was uh, trying to get a hold of it, but um, essentially the shareholders knocked it back. Yeah, trying to be cheeky there, Allegro. They tried, I think the, the, the stock was at three bucks when they tried to buy it, and it was um, it was a typical PE um, steal. I'm glad they didn't get to it because this thing um, was crazy cheap. Um, and it, on the numbers, I know it still looks crazy cheap. The P's four, the yield seven. I know that looks very attractive if all you do is look at numbers. But let's have a, a, a bit of a look at where this business has come from because um, um, I think this is a absolute classic value trap. And this is a cyclical business trading at cyclical highs. And this is the time to be selling it. Um, so very quickly, let's just go through some numbers. Volume is actually up 25% 
they own about a, a quarter of the market for aluminium products. So they take raw aluminium, um, construct it into useful stuff and sell it on. And so the, the margin you'd expect should be quite small, and indeed it is. Um, the EBIT margin has gone from sort of 2% pre-pandemic. It's now 7%. They've never earned a 7% margin before. And I think for a manufacturing business, that's actually quite, quite high. That really surprised me. Mm. Um, they used to make $10 million in operating cash flow. And last year, they made 40. Um, now, revenue has gone up from 400 to, to 550 or so. So relatively small increase in revenue has resulted in a terrific increase in, in, uh, in profit and cash flow. And that is operating leverage at work. Um, I think this is a classic sign of, of, a, of a top and um, I'd be yeah. selling this. It's, it's not a great business. It is a good management team mm -hmm. and it's a sort of business you want to keep on your watch list every time it has a big cyclical fall. This is a great go to stock. Um, okay. But for now, sell. All right, Luke, going to have to make it quick. Yeah, I, I agree with with all of that. It was, uh, you know, I knew Gaurav was going to have that opinion about the numbers look fantastic. And so when Chris stumbles across it, however he did, you look at the presentation, it looks really cheap and, and the growth is there. But for anyone who knows this business and where it's come from, or, or even just cyclical businesses in general, the, the red flags, are, you know, the alarm bells would have been flashing Gaurav that this is not the time to buy this business. <laughs> um, you could maybe hold it if you're there. But even then, I'd be careful. Um, they upgraded their guidance three times last year. Um, you know, that they clearly were in that cycle, they maximize it, full credit to management. Like um, a lot of times they'll have a really good year and they'll, you know, pump a ton of that back into CapEx or, or whatever. Yep. These guys, um, you know, big dividend, return capital to shareholders, um, pay down debt. I, I recommend them for that. I think it is a good management team. Chris asked about competitors. Um, they have a dominant position in Australia, but for many, many years, they were hounded by um, dumping of Chinese product. Now you rely on regulations to stop that but you know, regulations can only do so much. So um, always keep an eye on that. Uh, mm -hmm. Management seem to think it's behind them, but I think it's always gonna something that hangs over them. For me, it's a sell as well, despite you know, good management team yep. and it looks cheap. It's not the time to buy this business. You All right. can buy these businesses on low PEs and sell them on, on uh, sorry, buy them on high PEs and sell them on low PEs. That's a double sell for capital. Frontier Digital Ventures, Kelly, wanting to know about this one. It is focusing on developing uh, online classifieds uh, in undeveloped and emerging countries. Luke? Yeah, this, this comes up a fair bit. It's a very popular stock, and I mm. think you said it's in the portfolio. Um, XREA, IPP management, um, running a portfolio of emerging um, you know, frontier markets, primarily property and um, auto portals, which we know, you know, being on the ASX, they are the portals you want to own, those, those bigger transactions rather than your... Uh, freelancers or things like that, where it's much more competitive and, and, and open to churn. Um, they've swung their portfolio into, into EBITDA profitability. Um, they had one subsidiary in Morocco lose a lot of money, but uh, I think management have sort of said they've cleaned that up um, to the point where fourth quarter was pretty much break even. Um, at the current market cap, you know, it's not a business you look at on a profitability level. It's, it's very much the optionality of what they've got. Um, and they sort of highlight that by pointing out uh, Zameen, a Pakistani property portal, was last valued at $400 million and they own 30%. And, and you know, this is, this is the idea. It's like, a bit like PPK before. It's monetizing these assets when the time's right. So I think, you know, you've got a management team that's proven they can do it. I think they've, they've already shown they can um, take these operating businesses and, and get the metrics going in the right directions. And so for that sort of, um, you know, that sort of play, I, I think it's pretty good. I, I, I would probably just hold it, to be honest. I, I probably wouldn't buy um, just because of a lot of the things that are going on in the markets right now mm. um, in those sort of tech growth in place. Yeah. 
But I back the management team here, so I'll definitely hold it. All right, Gorev, what would you do with it? it? It's a stock that we own in, it's a chunky holding in the Intelligent Investor Growth Portfolio. Um, we've held this since about 50 odd cents. And when we bought it, this was a contentious idea in the team and it looked very speculative. Um, and I know that it's it's more than doubled since then, but the idea is probably stronger now than it was then. The, the progress that this business has made since back then, um, I don't think this is any longer just a lucky, specky little stock. Um, it's got great management with proven record, and that Zameen business is an absolute gun. Mm. Um, they dominate Pakistan the way REA dominates Australia, and they've actually leapfrogged REA. They become um, an agent and a sales platform all in one, so the potential margins that they will earn are actually better. So developers actually go straight onto Zameen, and they sell their properties on, on through Zameen um, without the agent, and they capture a lion's share of the margin um, there. So this could be a super profitable business. They own mm. a third of it. There are other gems in that portfolio, especially one that they took 100% ownership of in South America that um, that also dominates its respective space. There's a lot of optionality here. I think it's a buy, but I would also just be, this is one for the long-term investor because the mm. market is not suited to this kind of investment in this kind of climate. And that's exactly why you should own it now, but it's also <laughs> okay. why you need to show patience. All right, that's digital, uh, Frontier Digital Ventures. Let's uh, finish off with uh, Auckland Airport. We know what it does. This one coming to us from Alex and uh, Gaurav. Of course, the issue is just as far as passenger numbers at the moment, still we've seen those COVID impacts. Yeah, look, that, that's a very short-term um, way to look at it. Uh, I think we, we recently bought this, in fact, um, recently upgraded it and recently bought it for the funds. Um, we had a we, we had some during the pandemic um, sold it and we're back in it now. I, I think this is a wonderful long term growth story. Um, they are the biggest um, property developer in New Zealand, and um, the the property development potential in this business remains largely untapped. They've got a, a huge amount of property around the airport, which is scarce, valuable, a strategic asset, and they've got plans to develop that over the next twenty years. I think this is one you could just sit in the in the bottom drawer and just keep it for 20 years and you'll you'll make mm. wonderful returns out of it. Wow. Um, so especially for conservative investors, um, buy. Yep. Okay. Luke? Um, yeah, look, from an operational point of view, they had their um, passenger announcement the other week. It's still ugly. Um, two years on, numbers down 73%. Um, agree with Gaurav, like the share price doesn't reflect that. It's, it's the strategic value. It's a monopoly infrastructure asset. Um, there's two competing forces, I think, right now around these assets. One is higher bond yields should be theoretically driving down the valuation. Um, but we know how much money there is sloshing around looking for these assets from, from super and pension funds. Um, Sydney Airport obviously was, was bought out. There is a difference, though, with Auckland, which is the New Zealand government has stakes in a lot of these assets. And I think they own 18% of, of Auckland Airport from memory. Um, so I, I probably wouldn't be there if you're expecting a, you know, this to be a takeover target from, from private equity or, or, or a super fund. But I agree with Gaurav completely. I, I used to own this in, in a prior life running a mid-cap fund. Um, it's a bottom draw stock. It's there for the long term. It's that infrastructure asset. Um, you know, the passengers will return, we know that. But the, the long-term optionality around the, the land bank they have is, is, is spot on Gaurav's. You know, uh, I think they're the, already one of the biggest um, logistics uh, owners of, of logistics warehousing in, in Auckland already. So, um, yes, I think it's a great one for the bottom draw. 
I'd probably just hold it. I actually probably wouldn't buy it today. I'd, I'd probably okay. just hold it. Um, yeah, sort of thinking that through a bit more. Um, but but definitely if you're there, because if you're that sort of investor, you own it for that reason. You, you're not you're not selling it today for sure. All right, good one. Well, let's summarise the second half of the show. A Breville, uh, both liking it. Gaurav summing this up by saying, essentially, look, it's a marketing business, uh, given it outsources to China, but marketing design, but uh, seeing great potential there still, both got to buy on that. RxF Scientific um, saying, look, Luke is liking it, seeing those profit margins, particularly on its consumables, not cheap, but he's got to buy on it. Uh, Gaurav has a hold on that uh, Capril. Um, look, not, doesn't impress uh, either really saying, it, the Gaurav saying it looks crazy cheap, but it is a value trap. And uh, Luke sort of saying could be a hold, but essentially going to throw a sell on it. Uh, Frontier Digital Ventures there, it is in the uh, in the calls portfolio. Um, uh, Luke's got a hold on it. Gaurav's saying uh, intelligent investor has a big uh, slice of it. Uh, he's got a, a buy on it saying it was a speculative buy when they got into it. So uh, he's still liking it very much. And finally there we had Auckland Airport. Uh, Gaurav, long-term growth and uh, New Zealand's biggest property developer. So he's got a buy on it. Luke essentially saying maybe not now, but uh, he would hold the stock definitely. All right, that is our show for today. Luke, thanks for joining us from Meriwether Capital. Thank you so much, mate. And Gaurav from Intelligent Investor, thanks to you. Good to be here. All right, any of the stocks you'd like us to cover, flick us an email at the call at ausbiz.com.au. You can tweet us at ausbiztv. And a reminder where to find those stocks we have in the course portfolio. You can head to ausbiz.co forward slash portfolio. Thank you.